Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today, someone whom I have a great deal of respect and admiration. He's no stranger, but it's timely to talk to him now uh, as we focus on the dual loss of Reverend C.T. Vivian, Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian, and um, Congressman John Lewis, because he was right there in the midst of it all. Um, Nashville, Selma, you name it, he was there. Um, And he has his own story to tell. And I think we do well to hear from him about some of the things that happened. We're very honored to have with us today on the show, the Reverend Dr. Bernard Lafayette. Bernard, God bless you, brother. How are you doing? Well, we are hanging in here, doing the best we can. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I'm glad that you are healthy and safe in this this pandemic and whatnot. Um, In... I want to ask you about, obviously, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian. And in doing so, I think it's important for the audience to hear about some of your experiences and learn even more about your contribution to this revolution of the 60s. Um, First of all, when did you first meet John Lewis? Was was that at seminary in Nashville? Yes, that's right. I attended in 1958. And Lewis had already been there a year ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So he uh, was a sophomore and I was a freshman. Okay. And it was there at that time that 
the plan came up for the Nashville sit-in movement, correct? Could you tell us about that? Uh, yes. The background is that Martin Luther King met Jim Lawson earlier and uh, invited him to come south because he was familiar with uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who he had studied, and he had also uh, really had a good grip on nonviolence, that sort of thing. So Martin Luther King obviously felt that Jim Lawson could make a great contribution in the South. Um, as a result, uh, Jim Lawson uh, moved to Nashville, where he enrolled in Vanderbilt University Divinity School. And um, <clears throat> Jim started uh, conducting nonviolent workshops for the college students from different campuses there in Nashville. And we had a number of campuses uh, where black students were enrolled and got with the local chapter president who was uh, Kelly Miller Smith. Reverend Kelly Miller Smith was a uh, pastor at First Baptist Church in Nashville, but he also head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, local chapter, which was the Nashville Christian Leadership Council. And I'm emphasizing council because some people, you know, didn't know that the local groups were councils mm. and the national group was considered the conference. And you could see the initials and make an error. So I wanted to clear that up. It may be a little mundane, but we just want to try to stick to as much accuracy as we can. Yes, sir. So, in addition to being the pastor and head of the local chapter of SCLC, he was also a professor at the American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville. So, in fact, he was my homiletics teacher, along with C.T. Vivian. C.T. Vivian was more like on the graduate level, and he assisted Kelly Miller Smith in the homiletics uh, class. So I got to meet uh, these leaders just uh, the first year I was there. So um, that gave impetus to the student movement. And that was the group that sponsored these workshops that Tim Lawson was conducting for the students. And John Lewis said, was invited to go to the uh, workshops and they were looking for people who were students who were in uh, leadership positions from the various colleges and universities like Fisk University and Tennessee State University, even Meharry Medical School, the black school right there in Nashville where you know black students uh, went to medical school. And that was uh, other uh, schools there, but it wasn't limited to black uh, students. White students were also invited, like some of those from uh, Vanderbilt and Peabody, Scarrett, a lot of the white schools. And uh, we also had white, some of the white students, uh, like Paul LaPrade was at Fisk University. So we had black and whites participating 
in the training. So in addition to doing the, the workshops in Nashville, we went to Highlander Folk School, which was uh, more in uh, the rural areas of uh, Nashville. And we uh, had Miles Horton, who really embraced the whole idea of peace and nonviolence and fellowship and reconciliation and other groups, the Quakers, for example. And that's another thing I want to say about Nashville, that one of the uh, professors at Fisk University, okay, uh, was uh, very supportive of the sit-in movement. In fact, he came and had a sit-in with us, and we asked him not to come because we didn't want faculty members getting arrested there in Nashville. We wanted to keep it a student movement. Well, who was that, Bernard? What faculty member was that? Do you remember? It'll come to me Okay. as we talk. And uh, I remember that uh, his wife was a Quaker, of course, and we used to go there and just sort of sit around and uh, hang out at night. Fuson, his name Dr. was Fuson. Dr. Fuson, yeah, I remember him. I know him. Nelson Fuson, right? Nelson Fuson, Dr. Fuson. Is he the chemistry professor? He was a chemistry professor. Yep, yep. I, I grew up a, across the street from Dr. Fuson. I remember him when I was a little boy. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. We were in the area when the, when the, when the uh, lawyer's home was bombed in. Yeah, right. But I wasn't born yet. So yet. I came along in, I was born in 66. Okay. My yeah. mother was a senior at Howard. And so she took me back with her to Nashville to raise me. And I guess we got there right around 67. Mm -hmm. And when my mother was going to high school in Nashville, she went to Pearl. Yes, okay, um, high school. And she, in 1960, I think, yeah, she was a sophomore. And she wanted to go downtown with y'all. Yeah. But people were afraid that my mother was going to get hurt. Yes. My grandfather at the time was director of admissions at Fisk, J.K. Pedway. Okay. That was my grandfather. So he sent word to his friends, because he used to be in the Nashville public school system. He was a principal for years at Miggs, Miggs Junior High. He called it, and he taught at Pearl at one time, so he told everybody at Pearl, don't let Janet go downtown, you know, because she's, I don't want her to get hurt, and she's going to get all in it and end up getting beat up and bruised up real bad. And so when kids would try to sneak out of Pearl to meet y'all downtown, there was like a, a plot and a conspiracy to whatever they did, keep my mother from sneaking out. So every day it was a thing. She would try to sneak out and they were trying to stop her. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then the church that I was in, when she brought me back home, she took me back to her church and ra I was raised in Clark Memorial. And that's where I understand Jim and them used to hold some of the, uh, some of the training so that's right I was too young to participate but it's it was in my bloodstream <laughs> that's right yeah well that's exactly where it was and uh, as you pointed out they tried to keep the student the high school students from getting involved some climbed out of the windows and uh, sneaked out that's right good to get involved so we did have that 
Now, of course, when the younger students got arrested, instead of going to staying in jail, the authorities would call their parents because they were juveniles. They would simply take them back home and warn them, and sometimes they would chastise them for whatever reasons. But uh, once we got the uh, training going, we continued to train thoroughly. It wasn't just like a two-day workshop or five days. We actually got into depth of training. And one of the things that happened, Mark, was that the first time we went to sit in, it was not a protest. It was a test. Mm. Because see, what we would do is go down and sit in at the lunch counters to see what would happen. What would they say to us? And many times they said some very, you know, nasty things to us and called us names and stuff like that, et cetera. Refused right. service. It was kind of interesting and a little humorous. Some of the white students would go down and because they were white, the waitress would serve them because she didn't know they were with us. And this white students would just simply slide the uh, meal down to a black person. So technically speaking, some black folks ate at the lunch counter, okay, before they desegregated. Wow. <laughs> you can always go and stand up and order food to take out, but you had to stand up. You couldn't sit down. Even when you had to wait, you couldn't sit down. So they, because a lot of the black people used to work for white and, and uh, employers who would send them to get lunch. So they would go down and stand at the lunch counter on the corner there of the lunch counter and get there or make their order and then take it out. And black folks could also order food and take it out and sit on the curb or stand against the lamppost and eat it. So it wasn't like they were denying black folks the right to eat downtown. They were not allowing them to sit at the stool. That's where the inequality came in. It was very technical, okay? You couldn't sit down, but you could get food, all right? Now, when we were testing, we would come back and role play what we experienced as part of our workshops. So we have make-believe lunch stools, chairs, and then we would clobber each other, pull each other off the stools, and you've seen those films, and uh, slap each other and all that kind of business. And that was actually what they call simulation. So you simulated what you have happened downtown. Now, I didn't really give serious thought to the impact of that until I got in graduate school. And I was thinking about why they did that, that kind of training, because I decided early on that I wanted to recruit people and train them as well, because it made such a difference in terms of my own life. And so I finally came to the conclusion that the purpose of the uh, simulation and the role play was to condition your nerves, that is to give you strength so that you won't lose it because you have very good intentions, but once you get down there and somebody slap you, you didn't mean, you planned to 
be able to take it, you know, nonviolently, but hey, you don't know what you're going to do if somebody all of a slap you or spit on you. And I'll tell you a story later about how Kim Lawson got spat on. You probably heard about that. But the thing that really got me, uh, Mark, and to be honest with you, I haven't completely gotten over it yet all these years in terms of getting over it. And that is wondering whether or not I would do the same thing again that I did one time when I was sitting in. You know what happened? What? Okay. Uh, we've been sitting in the, in the, uh, on the stool, all right, not getting served. And sitting next to me was uh, one of the young ladies. And we didn't have any, you know, we didn't have too many uh, girls from American Baptist College. We had some, but uh, we only had maybe one or two participated in the sit-ins. But she was either from Fisk or, I didn't know her personally, that's the point, Fisk or either Tennessee State or someplace. This white fella came up behind us, struck a match, and lit up her hair. And you could hear, you know, her hair frying because it had grease in it, you know. And it was burning. And I'm sitting here. And, you know, we were raised to protect women. That's what, you know, our generation, you know, was earlier. Always, you know, that's your job to make sure nothing happened to women. You know, that's why you're a man. And that's what a man's responsibility was, you know. And it was frying. And she was sitting there very stoic. So I looked around. And, of course, the first thought that came to my mind was that he was going to light my head up. Okay. Because you had to be prepared for anything. Mm. Oh, she didn't do anything. She just sat there and her hair was frying. So I reached over, you know, even without looking at her, and started patting her hair down, trying to put out this, you know, sizzling noise. <laughs> and you know what she said to me, Barb? What? She looked at me and said, don't interfere with my suffering. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> No. So I was in a real quandary huh. because I immediately transfer and reinterpret her statement, okay? And I said to myself, what about my suffering? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, sitting here with her hair, you know, burning like that. So even though she told me not to interfere with her suffering, when the hair finished burning, What's next? The head. How did that girl have no burn up head? You know, that wasn't you know, necessary. I suppose, uh, you know, except suffering, but I figured that was enough suffering there. Right. You know? So I reached over again and put it out. Mm. I just, now that's what I mean by there's some things I haven't really resolved. Did I do the right thing? Uh, even though I'm a teacher and I'm a professor and I, you know, authority on nonviolence and training, I have not resolved that. And so what I mean is, I don't know if I'd do that again. I kind of <laughs> believe I would. <laughs> but so the real issue I'm dealing with here is, is it nonviolent when you interfere with somebody else's suffering? That's a question that experts have not really resolved yet.
and I'm waiting to hear that. And I admit that's something, that's a question that I would have. I know a lot of people have questions for me. That's a question I would have. Would that be the right thing to do? Right, that's fascinating. Yeah. So the Nashville sit-ins occurred after Greensboro in 1960, is that accurate? Yes, what happened was the students in, in Greensboro actually had their sit-in first and they were, you know, beaten up and all that kind of stuff, et cetera. And um, they, uh, the chaplain in that area called Jim Lawson and asked him what could he do to give support to the Greensboro students? Because they were just sitting there. And those of us who were in the training, we had been in very intensive uh, you know, workshops and training stuff, getting ready for the sit-ins. So we came up with the idea that we would have a sympathy march downtown in sympathy of the Greensboro group. Once we got downtown, we looked at each other and said, what are we doing having a sympathy march? <laughs> we need to get ready to go sit in because, <laughs> you know, that's where we were focused. So we decided to go and get ready and plan to sit in. And that's after we, the Greensboro group started. We then launched our sit-in movement because like we were already used to it because we actually had been on the stools. You know? Yeah, you, you had been practicing and preparing. And so now had SNCC come together yet by the time you were demonstrating in Nashville? Uh, no, SNCC came later. Okay. We already started our movement in uh, Nashville. Okay. So uh, we um, had a lot of, once we got started, we got sympathy demonstrations and support in the North. Because you could be served in the North, you know, at uh, Woolworth or other five and dimes. So what they did in the North was to picket like some of the white people. They could be served. So how do they support us? They don't have to go sit in, okay? Because they get sit, they sit in, they could get served. So uh, what they did was start uh, having sympathy marches and also they start having boycotts. Good, good. Nick was formed after that. So, so there's Nashville and John Lewis is there throughout all of that and you all were demonstrating. Yes. Uh, describe the kind of person you found him to be as you met him and began to grow with him as, as a young man. Mm -hmm. what, what do you remember, anything you remember most about him or his character then? Was there something, obviously all of you were exceptional to do what you did, but what was it about, was anything about John Lewis that, that stood out to you? at that time, that early? Yes. Number one, John Lewis was the class president as a junior. And then uh, John Lewis turned out to be the uh, student body president. So he already exemplified that leadership because, you know, this is a school for ministers. Those are leaders. Those are people who preach, you know, to large congregations. Some, you know, preachers, you know, they are uh, radio, you know, uh, 
preachers and everything. So they preached to even unseen audiences. And many of them had what you call preaching voices. So they had a musical tone, you know, like Martin Luther King with his baritone voice. Some people just loved to hear Martin Luther King speak. And some of them didn't understand the words he was saying because sometimes they were multi-syllable. <laughs> right, right. But when you ask him about it, they say, he sure sound good. Right. <laughs> didn't understand what he said, but it sure sound good. <laughs> they want to hear some more. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And they felt it, though. That's the other thing, uh, that um, intonation, his words and that kind of thing. It felt uplifted, you know. Yeah, so it was a feeling that we're talking about. So it's how you feel about things become more important than you think about things. There mm. might be some things that you might not like. But the question is, how do you feel about it? So that's what the movement was all about. It was about stirring up feelings. Because if you feel something, you have the more potential take some action. Yes, sir. You can always intellectually think about things and analyze them and that kind of thing, but the feeling, okay, made a lot of difference. So um, I would say that the other thing about John Lewis was his intonation. Mm. Okay, he had different voices and he would apply them to different uh, settings. Like, I'm sure he didn't preach to the chickens like he did preach to the other congregation people, okay? I had a special toll for chickens, okay? They <laughs> <laughs> were used to certain sounds, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, the other thing that I uh, observe about John is that he had a way of winning people over. It was remarkable. Uh, and that's because he appreciated people. Now, while he treasured his own thoughts and his own determination as a person, he also had a spiritual embrace. And that's how he was able to create community among even other leaders, student leaders. No coincident that he was president of the student body like that student body. That was different from a lot of other student body. Okay. Smaller, smaller, but hey, that means that you even got more competition. All right. So people respected him because he did not condemn them for being different. He accept their differences. And he was a reconciler. Diane Nash, she was another leader in our movement in Nashville, and we selected her as a leader for more than one reason. She was a spokesperson, and she could deal with the media, because that was very critical in a movement. You have to deal with the media. That's very important. Sigenthaler, okay. Haberstam, yeah, David Haberstam. We used to allow him to come in our meetings, our planning meetings, mm. larger meetings so much. I'm talking about the small planning meetings that we had. We call it the Central Committee. It was made up of the leaders of all the different groups. I got something I want to tell you. <laughs> uh, it's not in the history books. The uh, students who were pledging a fraternity over at the uh, Tennessee State, 
Right. The dean of pledges made one of the requirements for those students who were pledging that year in 1960 to go sit in. Wow. Beat them up. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> they got arrested. Okay. And that was part of their pledge in the fraternity. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, the one on the side with a K. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, there was Nashville. And, and you and John Lewis stayed together in terms of the, the trajectory. When, If I have the chronology correct, after Nashville, it's CORE and the Freedom Rides, correct? Yes. And you were uh, arrested and beaten up there too, weren't you? Yes. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Jim Swerd that was beaten. It was only a, a few years ago, and we were talking, Jim Swerd, he was a white uh, freedom rider. Right. Person that came down with us from Nashville. And he did not know that he was picked up and knocked over the rail at the bus station, rail that's there when the bus comes in, five times. He thought it was just once because he was knocked out the first time. Mm -hmm. And they picked him up, stood him in front of the rail, and knocked him over there five times. I was a witness. I was standing there watching him. Mm. John Lewis was hit with a Coca-Cola crate and had that, that metal uh, strip on the side of the wooden crate. That's the thing that put that hole in his head. Mm. Okay? And, and that, that, after that hole was there even before Selma. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He has many. Uh, uh, it's almost like a, a sculpture. When you look at the way his head, the holes in his head. Okay. And you can only see him after he got older and he uh, lost his hair. And you were able to see those those scars. And uh, But they came after me. And they had broke gang shoes on because they had already stepped on William Barbie's face on the ground and forced the lead pipe. You hear people talk about it. Yeah, they forced a lead pipe down his ear. He never did recover. He was a student at American Baptist College. Mm. I went to see him when he was in the hospital there after the, the beating had taken place. But they came after me. They were going to kick me in a certain place. And I went down to protect myself. Okay, and they kicked me in the chest. They meant to kick me someplace else, but I alternate my body in such a way. I went through the freedom ride with three cracked ribs, all the rest, because you can't do anything with cracked ribs. You can't do no surgery, whatever. And I knew if I complained about it, uh, my buddies would put me off the freedom rides. Then mm. I had three cracked ribs. So how old were you? How young were you then? Well, I was um, twenty, and by the time I got the freedom rides, I got to be twenty-one. My birthday is tomorrow. <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> so see, how old are you going to be on your birthday? Vivians would be the next day, the thirtieth of July. Wow. How, how how old will you be on your birthday? Oh, this coming birthday. Name is John Lewis, 80. Wow, wow. Well, happy birthday to you. I talked to Jim Clyburn the other day, and he turned 80 early this year. So all you all are right there at the same time. 
when did you get to Selma? I got to Selma in 62. Oh, one other point I just want to make about being in jail. Yes, sir. You know, the draft was at the same time, the Vietnam, the draft. Wow. Okay. So they came by my house looking for me because I hadn't, you know, reported. This was in Tampa, Florida. And my mother said, he's in jail. So they didn't come to put him in jail. He's already in jail. They say, well, so I was classified eventually as uh, rather than 4F, I was classified as 4D because ministers also were exempted. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. So in Selma, you went there and and I, cause I don't remember Were you, you went there on behalf of SNCC or the SCLC? Uh, SNCC. Once the freedom rides were over, mm-hmm. uh, we decided a number of us like uh, Charles Sherrod and, you know, others, right that we were going to give uh, some time to um, SNCC because we formed SNCC, but, you know, we didn't have any budget to hire a bunch of staff people. And, you know, so we went as, you know, like volunteers. We got a little stipend, but, you know, it was not like a real job, but we got stipend, you know, that kind of thing. And we were going to do like the the, uh, VISTA volunteers. Mm and core, uh, uh, you know, where you go and you volunteer abroad for a couple of years as part of your uh, experiential learning. Sure. So it was educational as well, you know, as work, where you are doing volunteer work to help people in certain kind of ways. So we wanted to help SNCC. And there was a controversy with SNCC now. There was a division. There was a direct action wing and there was those people who wanted to do direct action, all right? And then there was the voter registration, which in those days we considered a little conservative because you're not doing any confrontation or whatever. You're just going out helping people get registered to vote, okay? But you're not challenging the system in terms of confrontation with the authorities. So I decided that I wanted to go and work with the uh, voter registration, all right? And when I went to Atlanta to get an assignment, James uh, Foreman, who was our secretary, and by the way, I helped to recruit him from Chicago. He was a professor at one of the schools there in Chicago. and But he was very much, uh, you know, with us as students, so we felt comfortable having him with his maturity, you know, be there. But when I went to get my assignment, James Foreman told me there were no more uh, directorships. So I could be an assistant director. I said, man, I ain't going to be no assistant director. I have to be director of a project. He said, well, you go down there and work with Bob Moses and either over there with Charles Sherrod, okay, or Bill Hansen. A lot of people don't haven't heard of Bill Hansen. He was director of the Arkansas SNCC Voter Registration Project. You know anybody come out of Arkansas? Like maybe a president? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, I said, no, I have to be director. If I want to be assistant director, I'll go get married. Okay. 
Yeah, I'd be assistant director. Okay. Okay. Average. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so he said they had an X through Selma when I got there. When I got to Atlanta, on the board, the blackboard had an X. Hmm. They had sent two teams of snake workers down there. Okay, and independently they came back. There was about five in a group, and they went down separately. And they said nothing could be done in Selma. And they gave the same reason. They said the white folks are too mean in Selma and the black folks are too scared. Okay. So scared black folks, mean white folks, put them together. Yeah. Right. Doesn't happen. So James Foreman said, uh, well, if you want to go down and take a look at it and see what you think, I said, no, I don't want to take a look at it. I will take it if it's impossible. Hmm. Yes. This is a thing that John Lewis and I had in common. Take on the impossible. That's how you make it possible. Take it on. If it can't be done, do it. That's right. So you take the X out of the map. Now, it's very important that you don't just rush into things. So I don't advocate that. So if you see somebody you know, slowing down and taking their time and all that. That's very important. And I want young people to know this. Do your research. So in Selma, were you there when Malcolm X spoke to Snick? Yes. How did that come about? You all invited him. Is that correct? The first time Malcolm X came to Selma, he'd actually... Uh, had been invited to speak at Tuskegee Institute, the student body. And then he decided on the spur of the moment that since he was down there in Alabama and not too far from Selma, that he was going to go over and try to meet with Martin Luther King, who was in jail. And he tried to do that, but they would not allow him judge would not allow him to go and visit Martin Luther King in jail. Mm -hmm. So I, among with some of the other people, say, well, listen, since he's here, why don't we have him speak? Let's have a mass meeting and bring my, bring Malcolm X here. Uh, since he's already here, so he doesn't have to travel anywhere, let's just organize a mass meeting. On the spur of the moment, in less than two hours, we had a mass meeting there at Brown Chapel. Well, it sits in the public housing you know, projects, so it wasn't <laughs> difficult to go run around and around a crowd. Once the word got out, oh man, church filled up in no time. I personally was interested because I wanted to hear what he wanted to say to Martin Luther King. We knew he had broken with the nation and it formed his own group, but you know, this was great. This was two great leaders trying to, he's trying to get together. They've been together before. But Malcolm was making a special effort to have dialogue and to create a closer relationship and a coalition. See, he wanted his organization to have a coalition with Martin Luther King's organization. He was not aware of that. So we had to have a meeting to discuss that because some people were vehement. They were not, a, they say, well, if he'd get up there and speak and it might cause a riot and it just tapped the 
you know, I was selling a movement, whatever. And I said to myself, we've done all this nonviolent work and he can come and make one speech, you know, and tear up everything. And we haven't, we haven't done anything, okay? So anyway, we got into a serious discussion and I, uh, I'm old enough to confess that I managed a meeting, so to speak, okay? All right. So, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I was close to Stokely, not in his uh, particular philosophy of approach or whatever. And also Muhammad Ali. Okay, I can tell you some stories that I've had, you know, interaction with Muhammad Ali, you know, that kind of thing. So I was always open to these differences. Stokely and I were cellmates in, uh, on the Freedom Rides down in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And of course, nobody slept because we stayed up all night arguing with each other. So <laughs> I didn't have to worry about sleeping. So here we sat down, and here's what happened with Malcolm X and Selma. We said, okay, let's do this. We'll have Reverend Shuttlesworth. Shuttlesworth, yeah. Okay, we'll have him speak first. He'll open up the meeting at Selma. And we have Malcolm X speak. And then to close out the last part of it, we have Mrs. King, because Greta God King was there. And so Shellsworth was set the tone of the meeting, that kind of thing. Squeeze, sandwich, uh, Malcolm X in there. And then Mrs. King, if there's anything that Malcolm said that would uh, rouse up the folks, Mrs. King could be, uh, you know, soothing, cooling, you know, closing. So they agreed. That formula, that was a strategy. But when Malcolm X spoke, you know what he said? I don't remember what the others said. Mm. But the media was there in that short period of time. They had all that media there, the white media with the cameras and everything. And they were literally shaking, being overly excited. And that's who he was speaking to at this point, the media. And he pointed his fingers. And you know what he said? You had better listen to Martin Luther King. Because if you don't, you're going to have to listen to me. Now, of course, he wasn't talking to black folks because they were already, you know, moving themselves. But he was talking to the white media trying to reach the white constituency. Better listen to Martin Luther King because if you don't, you to listen to me. Yeah. I remember saying that. But you know what he said, Martin? Which really was an empuzzlement. He said, I'm a marked man, but when I get back to New York, Harlem. Yeah. He said he was going to be killed. He said, I'm going to name my assassins. Can you imagine that? Mm. It was sort of a twisted thing there. And we were very nervous and concerned, but how could he make that kind of prediction? Mm. And so that's how he left us in Selma, Alabama. The original plan we all know was to, as John Lewis's body was carried across the Edmund Pettus Bridge last Sunday, the original plan was to carry Jimmy Lee Jackson's body. Yes. We see now Trump doing exactly what Wallace did, trying to ban demonstrations. There were nighttime demonstrations in Selma. No one wanted that. Now, let me ask you this first. I have not found it, but someone told me that in Jail Chestnut's book, he recalls a moment when C.T. Vivian was almost killed in Selma. Have you heard of that? Is that accurate? Oh, yes, most definitely. 
Now, I know we've seen the incident in front of the courthouse, but apparently in one of these nighttime situations, he came close to death. Do, do you know that story? I don't know the details of it, but I've, I've heard that kind of thing happening. Yes. James Orange is in jail. People are demonstrating. Jimmy Lee Jackson gets killed. Now, the other story, and this is what we'd like for you to clear up. SNCC was not in favor of March 7th. Is that accurate? And John Lewis went ahead anyway. Is that the accurate story? That's the accurate story, Mark, yes. What happened? Why was SNCC against it? He represented himself on that march. I think this is the time for truth-telling, okay? Okay. SNCC had gone in earlier. Now, Martin Luther King had been invited before SNCC went into Selma. Mm-hmm. And he did go in and he spoke at one of the meetings. Mrs. Boynton was very much trying to get Martin Luther King to bring, you know, SCLC to, uh, you know, Selma. And I'm saying this as now the chairman of the board of SCLC. Mm-hmm. Not now. Okay, I got you. Mm. But truth of the matter is that SNCC went in. When I say snick, I was talking talk about myself, I guess, because <laughs> I'm on all sides of these things, you know, right? Uh, different organizations. And that, that's why you're so, that's why mediation is your calling. I suppose so, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I do love meat, but uh, I like fish. <laughs> Fishing around is more my, uh, okay, characteristic. Fishing around. So uh, the attention uh, that Selma brought on a uh, national basis, sometimes um, when you had those kind of um, uh, reputation and meetings and you had that kind of press, et cetera, it did help to raise money. Mm. Some of the snake people, not all of them, so I'm giving you the whole picture now, felt that when Martin Luther King would come to a place like Selma, they would do fundraising. But when SNCC had done a lot of work, they felt that SCLC, you know, didn't put in a lot of, you know, resources and effort to make that kind of thing happen, which was not totally true because Martin Luther King always gave support to other organizations and other efforts and stuff like that. Right. That was not. Look at his Nobel Peace Prize money. What do you think he did with it? He gave, okay. gave it back to the organization, right. right. Yeah, the different groups, yeah. So, so, so Martin Luther King was not into just uh, getting some money for himself. That was not the situation at all, okay? Mm-hmm. Like he had very little money even when he was assassinated. Harry Belafonte had to come in and give some special support you know, for that. So uh, there were some people in SNCC who uh, said they weren't going to participate in the march if uh, uh, Martin Luther King was going to be there and lead it. So there was some debate about the Selma march. It was Jim Bevel who said that he was going to walk all the way and then he was going to carry the body purpose of it, as you would mention earlier about Emily Jackson and uh, the fact that uh, 
a state trooper killed him. That's why they were going to the Capitol. Yes, yes. State trooper. So that was the governor responsibility. So um, John Lewis felt that he had to go on his own. But see, organizations do that sometimes to their leaders. SCLC board did not support Martin Luther King taking a stand against Vietnam, the Vietnam War. They did not support that. So the stand that Martin Luther King took, again, was on his own. So you, you have that in many different situations. So uh, look at John Lewis, and it was the same as Martin Luther King. Sometimes you have to make a personal decision on your own convictions and what you believe in. Even though you have an organization and that you try to be loyal to that organization and give leadership, sometimes your leadership steps beyond your structured organization. You have to lead a, a, a ship, not a canoe, okay? A real, a real serious ship not a, a piece of board. And so that's another important uh, position. And John Lewis did that as well. Yeah. One of the things that I should tell you about this that some people may not know, Mark, is that since Martin Luther King couldn't go on that first march, we're talking about, all right, that Bloody Sunday march, because he it was his time to preach at the church in Atlanta. Right. He was a co-pastor, and they used to rotate the first Sundays, okay? And then since Martin King didn't go, Abernathy didn't go, all right? So how did they decide? Now, Andy Young, the truth is told, would have been the other person other than Hosea Williams. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't sacrifice two top leaders in SCLC. Somebody had to be, you know, the backup, and somebody had to be the coordinator. And so you couldn't have all of them being arrested and beaten up at the same time. Right. So they, uh, I don't know if it's true, but they said they flipped a coin. Ah. And Jose won the toss. <laughs> the training and the exercises that we learned in, in Nashville and all the other kind of experiences prepared us for this. But you have to have motivation first. And that's what you had in C.T. Vivian. And you had that in uh, John Lewis. And that came out of that training in Nashville. No question about it. Jim Lawson is still with us. Nobody will ever know the unique contribution he made. It's no coincidence that Marion Barry was uh, mayor of uh, Washington, D.C. You had uh, and Diane Nash and Jim Bevel and... John Lewis, okay, and C.T. Vivian, and you go down the list. Bernard Lafayette, folks, we thank him for this wonderful exchange and his remembrance and his service, turning 80 years old himself this week, a contemporary of John Lewis and a student of C.T. Vivian's uh, when he was at American Baptist Seminary. Bernard, we thank you so much, man. Thank you, and I appreciate what you're doing. And that's what I would have been doing if I weren't actually doing the training and that sort of thing. But it was the last conversation I had with Martin Luther King is the reason I'm doing the work I'm doing now. Sure. 
because he said that he wanted to institutionalize and internationalize nonviolence. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you. For thank thankful for you, Bernard Lafayette. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.